There's big information coming down the pike on the Delphi murders. Superintendent Carter was very emotional. It was noteworthy. It's over. They're coming for him. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case. Hello and welcome to best case, worst case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today in the studio is... Hi everybody, it's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Hi Jim, we are back continuing our gripping discussion of the Delphi murders of uh, Abby and Libby, two teenagers. And we are joined by our very special guests. Bobby Chacon, retired FBI special agent. Maureen O'Connell, retired FBI agent. All right, Jim, let's just get right back in. We'll dive right back into it. Last episode, we were talking about the Delphi murders of Libby and Abby, two wonderful little girls whose lives were taken from them. And it really destroyed an entire town and their stories have basically reached around the globe right now. They have. And there are new developments to report in 2019, two years and a couple of months after Abby and Libby's lives were ended by some terrible evil human being. The police have announcements to make. And about a week ago, they had what I consider to be, Jim, a remarkable press conference. And that was by Doug Carter, who was the superintendent of the Indiana State Police. They gave a live press conference. And Maureen, you and I were talking earlier about some of the things leading up to the press conference. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about what you know the police were doing. And then I want to ask Jim what that means. Yeah, I wanted to ask Jim what that means, too. We talked about that also. So about um, a week or 10 days ago, they, they being the state police and all the entities involved in this investigation, they started putting out information on social media that said there's big information coming down the pike on the Delphi murders. Expect a huge announcement coming down the pike on the Delphi murders. And it sort of ramped up. It was taking on a life of its own. I was seeing it all over all platforms of social media. It was a bit of a frenzy. It was a bit of a frenzy. And I follow all the true crime podcasts and all you people out there that love true crime like we do. And I just thought, this is very interesting that they're giving us so much time to prepare for this. Instead of saying, tomorrow afternoon at noon, 
there's going to be and a it culminated on Friday of last week when they did actually schedule the press conference for Monday morning. So all weekend there was this, oh my God, what's going to happen Monday? Everyone yes. assumed there'd been an arrest made or they yes. were going to announce the suspect or yes. something really big. They were showing photos of these people that they thought were the offenders who matched these, um, this, the initial sketches from 2017. So it was, it was quite a, a hubbub. And then, you know, we talk about this before. And, and when you ask me a lot about releasing information to the public, I always keep it in the back of my mind because th- this is the way you usually do it. There's a strategic and investigative strategic reason for doing that. So I wouldn't be surprised if we ultimately find out after they arrest the perpetrator um, and they release some more of this information that they did that not for publicity or any other reason. They did that because they had some strategic investigative reason to, to want Absolutely. people to start talking. I'll tell you what it is because I know I've, I know that that was scripted by the behavioral analysis unit. Yes. And I think it was very carefully scripted. Everything, the press in advance, the build up to it, they want the killer to know that they are coming for him. They want him to understand that they now have a laser focus on him because that is going to help others around him know that his behavior is changing. Yes. Ever mm-hmm. since they started making this announcement, his behavior started to change. Ever since he heard that press conference, his behavior started to change. And he will do things that will put a spotlight on him. He can't hide. He can no longer hide. Well, let's let's talk you- about some of the specific things that superintendent uh, did and said. As Maureen and I talked about earlier, they invited the public to this press conference, invited the media to this press conference, had a lot of seats available for the public, and yet they didn't take a single question. So, Jim, could that have been some kind of setup to see if the killer arrived? Absolutely. And that's why I think they gave so much time. Absolutely. Um, a headway head so that this person, if he doesn't live in town, but he visits there, it gives him you time. You can hear Superintendent Carter say, you may be in this audience. I'm speaking to you. And he wants to give that opportunity to the offender to do what's right. Because he knows that that offender is listening without any doubt. That offender is listening to this press conference if he's not in the audience right there. Well, so let's talk about some profiling secrets, Jim. When Superintendent Carter said, now I'm talking directly to the killer. We believe you're hiding in plain sight. For more than two years, you never thought we would shift gears to a different investigative strategy, but we have. Why do the profilers think it's a good idea to say, we're talking directly to you? And why are you talking about investigative strategy? That doesn't sound that exciting. What's the point of that? S. T-R-E-S-S. They are increasing the stress on the offender. When offenders get stressed out, they act to their extremes. People will notice the change, and that's what they're doing. They are absolutely trying to get this guy to realize it's over. They're coming for him. They will not give up until they catch him. They now have a very good description of him. They know where he was at a particular period of time, and they will, they're, they're whittling down the suspect pool, and they're aiming right at him now. And that's really important. Delphi is a town of like 3,000 people. It's yeah. rural. Um, and I think basically what, he, what the chief did is look right in the killer's eyes as best he could and say, you will find no safe haven here anymore. This is it. You're done. You're done here in Delphi. So if somebody has a friend that happens to look like that, that sketch. And they say, you know what? I, I think I'm moving to Florida. 
It's time. I've been thinking about this for a while. Things like that. Some somebody's going to yeah, take uh, off. My grandmother's sick. I got to go to Texas. And that person's going to go. Oh, what? Now he's leaving. So right. that's what Jim's talking about. I think that I think that they will no no longer have the safe haven in Delphi that they've had. Well, and Bobby, you made a recent appearance on HLN, and one of the reporters on HLN was in the room during the press conference. And was saying that she felt like a chill wind blew through when the superintendent said directly to the killer who may be in this room. It's like until that moment, except for the investigators, it occurred to no one that the killer would be sitting there watching the press conference. And it just makes me wonder, did everyone immediately start looking around and thinking this is the sketch? Am I sitting next to this guy? Is he standing in the back? Where is this guy? I thought that was a really interesting point that sure. the reporter made about the atmosphere. In well, the room. and and just think that that's that reporter made it about that room. And and I, you're right. I was on live on the air with HLN at the time of the press conference, and it goes beyond that press conference. So yes, people are looking to their left and right, but they're also doing that same thing in every diner, every fast food restaurant, every convenience store in Delphi, every gas station in Delphi. Every people home. looking at the clerk that they usually go to. They're looking. These people are going to be looking left and right. And if he's still in Delphi, they will find yeah, him. Yeah, but and even if he's not still in Delphi, they'll know right. that he's not still in exactly. Delphi. And they'll know that he moved out at this point after the murders. They'll know that he lives somewhere. Right. That's and a, he can yeah. be trackable. Absolutely. And I think that the behavioral analysis unit also trained or talked to or, or is looking at video footage of everyone in that room. If they didn't videotape everyone that showed up in that room and watched the reaction when certain words were said, for example, when the superintendent said, you are a coward, or, you know, he actually said, what will those closest to you think of when they find out that you brutally murdered two little girls, two children, only a coward? And he paused would do such a thing. I thought all of that very interesting. Well, it's very Jim- interesting, but I just, I'm sorry, Bobby, I just wanted to ask Jim because that actually sort of made me nervous because in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, okay, this guy's a homicidal maniac. I know you're not supposed to use those words, but in my mind anyway, he's a homicidal maniac. And now you're potentially pissing him off. You're obviously doing it on purpose. I get you're trying to stress him out, but are we worried we're going to enrage a man who's already killed two little girls? I believe that they would have been foolish if they didn't metal detect everybody who came into that room. I believe that that what they're trying to do is get him to show himself, to run, and they will track him down. He is not the kind of criminal that is going to go out and shoot people or confront people. He's going after little girls. He's laying in wait in the woods for little girls. And when they call him a coward, it's because they know. That is going to be something he recognizes in himself. His stress, I think, will will not be the stress reaction he exhibits will not be the one you're talking about. I understand that's the right. natural inclination. Oh my God, he's going to flip out. But he's he's right. They, this guy is a coward, and his stress reaction to that is not going to be that. Yeah. It will be something else. It's going to be I'm going to run and hide. Right, right. Because he always who, who what entices him, what gives him satisfaction, the most vulnerable of the vulnerable. Yeah, he's, being powerful. He has to threaten somebody who's vulnerable. He doesn't have the balls or the guts to go up against somebody who's his size, to go up against somebody who's stronger than him. He's going to run and hide. And if you're listening, we know it. Jim, I had a question for you, and it came up while I was watching the press conferences. What is the strategic reason for 
the chief to get, like, say, I think you might have an ounce of conscience left? Because they're appealing to them. They're giving them the opportunity to come in, to not have this end in, you know, suicide by cop. They're giving him the opportunity to say, all right, I can prove myself as a human being. I can go back and repair some of the damage I did. But a chance for redemption. He's giving them that chance. Right. And is that is that the idea that maybe this killer of children actually is capable of any kind of remorse? Yeah, you can't put everybody into a little pigeonhole, okay? Just because he did this one thing doesn't mean he doesn't have a family, he doesn't have friends, he doesn't have a job, he doesn't have somebody that loves him or that he loves. Or gives money to charity. Yeah, or he could do people. all these things and still be the person that killed these little girls. And it's probably very inconsistent with how people around him see him. And so it's really important that people understand that the guy they're looking for is not a monster predator. That is a label that makes you look right past this guy because you would never see him as that. But the fact is that he is the person that killed these two little girls. And he has been hiding this thing. And it has been eating at him and eating at him since it happened. And yeah. he fantasized about doing it before it happened. Yes. I mean, Israel his behavior Keys, definitely changed. Israel Keys told the interrogators, you can see this on his YouTube because it's all released on YouTube now. He tells them, because you're going to talk to a lot of people and you are going to get a picture of a person that is not the person that I am going to tell you about, that I did these things, completely admitted to being a serial killer, completely committed to doing all this heinous stuff, but at least, and, and also told them and admitted that there was another part of him who was the father of an 11-year-old daughter right. who was didn't the boyfriend of a know. woman. Right. He didn't want her to know. And that's probably why he killed himself, because he wanted to prevent her from knowing. He was such a coward. He didn't want to have to face her, knowing that he's trying to teach her to be a good person and do all these things and learn right from wrong. Yet, he's been killing people around this country for years. America has fallen in love with Best Fiends, the five-star rated mobile puzzle game. You can discover the world of Best Fiends and its cute characters in this fiendishly fun, free-to-download mobile puzzle game. I love playing Best Fiends wherever I am. I have gotten hours of fun already playing this great puzzle game. The puzzles are challenging. The characters are adorable with the bugs and the slugs. I love working the little mouse and moving my characters around and solving the puzzles and accomplishing the goals of best fiends. This is a totally different puzzle experience. You can solve thousands of fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. There's an epic storyline that will keep you engaged with this puzzle mobile game. There are thousands of hours potentially of gameplay. It's easy to learn. If I can do it, you can. It's difficult to master though. It's a five-star rated mobile game on the Apple App Store and on Google Play. You can download it for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, best fiends. Getting fit and staying healthy always sounds easier said than done, right? Well, OpenFit is bringing you something new that makes it even easier to never miss a sweat session. 
Open Fit takes all the complexity out of losing weight and getting fit. It's a brand new, super simple streaming service that allows you to work out from the comfort of your living room in as little as 10 minutes a day. Everyone's body is different and OpenFit totally gets that. That's why it's personalized to your needs with custom tailored original content. I love OpenFit. My favorite program is the Yoga 52. It's a brand new yoga program every week for you to try. Right now during the OpenFit 30-day challenge, our listeners will get a special extended 30-day free trial membership to OpenFit, where you can lose up to 15 pounds in 30 days when you text BCWC to 303030. That's 303030. You will get full access to OpenFit, all the workouts and nutrition information, totally free. All you have to do again is just text BCWC to 303030. That's 303030. Standard message and data rates may apply. Let's talk a little bit, Maureen, about this power issue. And Jim, obviously, I want to ask you about that too. But Maureen, uh-huh. you and I talked. She's talk- asking me about power, not you, Jim. <laughs> we, you- so damn hurt by that. <laughs> you and I talked earlier about uh, the, the chief's words and how carefully he spoke them. I mean, I, they, obviously, according to Jim, and I think he's probably right, it was scripted, very closely scripted by profilers. But he said, we have likely interviewed you or someone close to you. We know this is about power to you, and you want to know what we know, and one day you will. What is the point of that, do you think? Well, I think that's uh, up Jim's alley far more than mine. It's the same exact thing. I mean, what the police superintendent is trying to do is make the offender aware that everything is closing in on him, that the people that know him are going to be his worst enemies now. That the people who have been sort of close to him and hiding him in plain sight are the people that are going to come forward and say, you know, it's funny, after that press conference, this happened and that happened. So that's post-defense behavior that this kind of statement will help bring about. And the fact is, he's not sophisticated enough to survive that. He's not going to be in a position to be able to mask himself anymore. And he is going to be revealed. Yeah, because I, as much as he was talking to the killer in that press conference, he was talking to everyone else that lives in that town. Yes. He was telling them, look left, look right, look at the people around you, because one of you, and it's somebody you know, and you don't even realize it yet, but it's somebody you know that killed these kids. Yeah, and I'm sure that if you look at that sketch that was done, that he has changed his appearance subtly over time, that he changed and changed and changed. And if he hasn't, he did... S- Right after that press conference. Right. And it could be hair color, grew a beard, Mm -hmm. you know, manipulated his eyebrows in some way, whatever, got tattoos, whatever, something to draw attention away from the way he looks. Because the thing about sketches is that when offenders see themselves in a sketch, it scares the shit out of them. Well, we'll we'll post this new sketch on our social media so that everyone that listens to this podcast can take a look and there may be some chance that you know who the killer is. I think the other interesting thing to me, uh, to Maureen and Bobby, was the more, quote, more information that was released in the press conference. It wasn't a ton of information, but for example, when they previously released- What do you mean? It wasn't a ton. Well, no, no. What I mean to say is when they previously released the audio and video, it just had the, the presumed killer saying down the hill- 
And then yesterday they expanded it. And now it says guys down the hill, which you can clearly hear. Why do you think they released a little more of the audio, but that on the other hand doesn't seem all that significant? I actually think that the only reason they did this is because they formulated this brilliant plan to offend, stress out the offender, get him to a point, lure him in potentially, and all these other things. And of course, because of the new sketch, I don't think it had much more to do with yeah. these other things. The only thing he made a point of saying, it sounds like two different people, but it is the same person. It is the killer, right? Mm-hmm. That's what he said. And so he could have been masking his voice in part of it, and his natural voice was the other part. So I think that's probably why they did it. And mm-hmm. I think that's also why they released the video instead of just the stills. And I think when they release the video, people will notice more. Like Maureen noticed how when he was walking his gait, he seemed like he was o- overweight. But when you saw him walking, you could see that his legs were, were pretty skinny, that he was wearing oversized clothing, and that he had stuffed things in there to make him look bigger or Maybe that was intentional. Maybe that was just because he was hiding equipment. Right. Like ropes and anything else. Well, and you're also talking about, I mean, to me as a Southerner, the only Southerner in the room, when you you have someone saying guys down the hill, that is not what a Southerner would have said. It would have been y'all down the hill. So I think it's a regional thing. I'd love to ask Jim Fitzgerald about this, about the dialect and the terminology. Well, I say guys all the time. It is a Midwestern thing. I'm from Chicago. It's also February, and I don't know if it was very... It was a nice day there or whether it was freezing out. But if this person was hanging out of the woods for a long period of time, some of that bulk might have been literally to insulate him. It was 60 you know? degrees that day. So it yeah, was pretty it was, warm that but day? It was, it it was, was bulgy. It wasn't. I know. I it was know. warm. So it was like pokey, bulgy. It didn't look like I'm wearing three sweaters. Right. It was warm because Libby didn't want to wear a sweatshirt and her grandmother said, put a sweatshirt on. And she says, do I have to? Yeah. It was that well, when you're change. used to, you know, sub, sub, sub zero temperatures and then you it, get your first it, nice you day. Have a nice day. Yeah. I remember living in shorts. Syracuse and it, it got to 50 and we were all in shorts and <laughs> right, t-shirts, right. you know, it was like amazing. I think that taken together, your question is they wanted to release a little bit more because all of this goes to uh, this guy's signature, his gait on that bridge. They asked people to look very closely at how he's walking. Now, realizing that that bridge and the, the, the treads on that bridge are far apart and it's a very high bridge and there's no guardrail on it, and yet he keeps his hands in his pockets. I would have had my hands out trying to balance myself as I'm going between these uneven uh, slats on that That's bridge. So they want people to look at this and say, oh, that I know that guy's gait because we know, you know people's gait. If you see somebody you see all the time and then you turn the lights off and you just see their shadow, you can identify them. The word guys is some part of the vernacular people. So they release that. The reason I think it sounds different is because the statement guys is to bring someone's attention. If, if you're looking at me and I want you to go down that hill, I just say go down the hill. So I think what happened was Libby's phone was facing away from him because they weren't looking at him. He says guys, they turn towards him. Now the microphone on that little phone is, is facing him. So the guys and down the hill sound differently because the microphone, they turned to him and then he said, down the hill. Well, I also, guys was that's away. That's a really good point. Well, and I also wondered whether it was edited, whether the police have released guys from one part of that audio and down the hill from another part. I, and because they sound so different, they wanted the public to hear both 
just in case someone recognizes one uh, voice versus, versus it, it could the other. be. I, I tend to think that he said guys and they turned and looked to him and the microphone was repositioned and that's why it sounds a little different. But I also think that they made a point of making him believe that they even have more video of him or more audio of him specifically more audio of him and know what his voice sounds like. They didn't release more of it. And like you said in the last episode, you know, maybe she had that. He didn't know she had that phone on. So maybe there is more audio. And I think now the killer, by releasing even a little bit more, knows the police didn't release it because they, it's all or nothing, right? So now they're telling him, we have more when just not releasing it. And if what Francie said is true and what you just said is true, there's a really good reason why they aren't releasing that audio because it might be horrific for everyone to listen to. Well, and once, and that's maybe why they made the reference, as I talked about in the last episode, to preserving evidence for trial. Fortunately, if in the sense that we want him captured, but unfortunately in the whole circumstance is that a jury will eventually have to see and hear everything that was captured on, on Libby's phone. Right. One of the questions I wanted to talk to you guys about, because we don't have anyone here who's working this case, but obviously we've all worked cases that are similar to this emotionally speaking. So let's get a little bit inside uh, the minds of the investigators and go behind police lines, Jim. This Superintendent Carter was very emotional. It was noteworthy. There were times in his delivery of some of these statements that he had to pause. He was visibly emotional. And, you know, it's not something we see often from seasoned police officers. Mm -hmm. Uh, They try not to present that kind of face to the public. We as professionals try to be as emotionless as possible in our public presentation of these cases because we have to be able to take a step back in order to work them. What do you think, Jim, as far as an impact it might have had on the offender to see that the police superintendent was emotional? Do you think it shows weakness, strength, or something else? Well, I think it shows humanity. And I think the level of emotion that he exhibited paired perfectly with his statement that he is not going to stop until he gets this guy. And I think that was incredibly important. It's a very specific message to this offender that he can never rest. Well, and Bobby, you've recovered children uh, in terrible conditions. Uh, You know, you've seen the worst Uh, especially in the Israel Keys case that people can do to children. When you hear the emotion coming from the superintendent, what do you think about that that was the public face they put out? Well, um, I think he had to do that. I think it was honest and genuine, number one. I don't think there was any uh, uh, face put on that that was different. I would think those were his honest, raw emotions. And I think it was important um, that as the leader of this effort that he – demonstrate that. I'm sure that the hardened detectives who are working these cases also feel that way, but they probably don't want to be in, in the public eye like that. I think, though, that it's important for the leader of this investigation to show that all of the men and women working this investigation have the same emotional vested interest in it. They're all working night and day to bring this to a resolution. And I think that it was very important for him as the leader to put that to not only the families, but the public as well. Well, and Maureen, you've worked these kinds of crime scenes with terrible um, injuries to people, the things that these kinds of killers do to people, especially children. How do you do that kind of job, especially when it comes to children, when your emotions are so involved? How can your emotions not be involved after all? There's no way that you can't 
become emotionally attached to an investigation like this. I think it just fuels most of us to just work harder and to do absolutely everything. Like I'm sure these guys will tell you, you just wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, did I try that? Should I try this? Did, could I try that? And it's, it's hard to slow your mind down. It really is hard. And Jim, as a profiler, it was obviously part of your job to get inside the mind of an offender like this. Tell us a little bit about what the profilers who've been working on this case and the FBI agents helping the local police on this case are experiencing. Do they stay invested two years later? When do they tire of the kind of evidence in this case? Or they do don't, they? They don't tire of it. They, they It constantly weighs on their shoulders. Until a case like this is solved, they're always thinking about it. And Many of them go home to their wives and their children, their families, and and they just pray that nothing like this ever happens to them because it, it taints you. It definitely makes you feel like there's some real horrors out there, some real bad people who do really bad things to each other. And it's really unfortunate, but you also have to sort of harden your heart so that you can keep doing this because it does does sort of pile up on you. And one of the things that I recommend to people who are doing these kinds of jobs is that they find a way to balance it, that find a way to be creative and do things that are totally different so that they can kind of get their psyche back to neutral because it does not stay that way when you work these cases for a while. And another unintended consequence, Francie, is that um, you find you find people complaining to you about things, and in your mind, you're rolling your eyes and you're saying that doesn't even ping my radar. Like, how can you? You know, I That's was just it, with the the body of a small child. What are you even complaining? You're about? absolutely right, and it's difficult to be in relationships because of that. Because people that you're partnered with are living a normal life and they they don't understand that you know spilled milk is spilled milk this is life or death and it's sort of like the same as i see you know people in the in the entertainment industry they get so upset and so worried about little things that can be changed with the stroke of a pen they don't really understand that for us life or death was a daily thing and it's just a whole different perspective on life well, I just wanted to say that to the killer of Abby Williams and Libby German, law enforcement is coming for you. Yeah, and we're all going to be happy when you go down hard. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Bobby and Maureen, for coming in and talking to us about this horrific case. It's just one of those cases that, you know, weighs so much on us as investigators. And I know you feel the same way I do. This is the kind of thing that you just can never really rest completely until this case is solved. It brings solved. back all the other ones we've worked, you know, all the other little kids that, yeah. that, that we've recovered and that we've worked. And um, I'm just, I'm so hopeful now and I'm so anxious to hope that, that the killer is going to be brought to justice soon. Really well, I'm so, so grateful for all of our fellow law enforcement that just, as we all know, they never, ever put down the torch. They all carried, carried it burning brightly in their chests, each mm -hmm. and every one of them. And that's why we're where we are. And it's great that we now have investigative genealogy. So if they did recover any DNA off of these girls or the area, they can now actually hunt this guy down and identify him by name.
that sketch may be a result of forensic genealogy. It may very well be. Let's hope so. Anyway, till next time, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories about child sexual abuse can make us feel powerless, but the good news is that there are organizations working to prevent abuse and keep kids safe. Darkness to Light and their Stewards of Children Prevention Training has trained more than 1.4 million adults to protect, recognize, and react responsibly to child sexual abuse. But there's more work to do, and with their 4 million by 2020 goal, Darkness to Light is setting their sights on training 4 million adults around the country to keep kids safe. By donating to Darkness to Light, you can help reach this goal that will make communities across the country safer places for kids. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org today to give. That's www.d2l.org. The number two L dot org.